You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. a new sermon series for you. We're going through the book of 1 Peter starting this week. The series is going to be called Chosen Sojourners. And one of the things that I find fascinating about this book of the Bible is that there are some very accurate parallels to what was going on in Rome when Peter wrote this book to what is happening right now. So, Being the introductory sermon in this series, I feel like I have to set this up for you, and it's going to take a little time, but you you need to understand why things that were going on at this time very much mirror what is happening to us right now in 2022 in the United States of America. So Paul wrote this in 63 A.D., And let me tell you about Rome in 63 AD. Nero was the emperor of Rome. And for those of you who know anything about Roman history, you know what a madman Nero was. He was the emperor from 54 AD to 68 AD when he committed suicide. But in 64 AD, he burned half the city of Rome and he blamed the Christians for that. Maybe you've heard that in history class. Now, because of a number of external and internal cues in the New Testament, we know that Peter wrote this letter from Rome in either late 63 AD or very early 64 AD. It happened before that fire, uh, but it almost certainly happened after Paul wrote his prison epistles because Peter references those letters of Paul, and we know those were already circulated before Peter wrote this letter. So that puts it, it had to have been late 63, early 64 AD. And at this time, Rome was the superpower. They had vast diversity of nations under their control, of cultures, of languages. There was constant, though, with all of that, there was constant social, religious, and political conflict. So right now, as this letter is written, the full persecution of the Christians being sent into the Colosseums and slaughtered by the gladiators. That was about 20, 25 years away from, from 1 Peter chapter 1. Rome was a powder keg, though, and it was ready to go off, and the Christians, even now, were feeling that pressure. So similarly, in the United States of America, we are facing constant social, religious, and political conflict. So here's where I'm going to probably make a few of you uncomfortable uh, right off the bat in this series. We're going to get to 1 Peter 1 in a minute, but I want you to hang tight with me for a couple more minutes and think through something that may sound controversial, but it's very relevant for where we are going, and it's an important component in understanding how this letter applies to you. So here we go. Christians don't have full persecution Yet, 
But as the heat is constantly getting turned up higher and higher, there are cues everywhere that show the narrative is being rewritten to set up full persecution. And while all of this is going on, all of these things right before our eyes, there's a lie that's out there that says you have to keep politics out of the church. You can't talk about this. As if politics and faith are just two separate entities that have no bearing on one another and they never cross-pollinate. I've heard this my whole life and it got me thinking, where has that really gotten us? And even more importantly, another question to ask is, is that biblical? Are we supposed to just keep our mouths shut about political issues that are 100% moral issues that the Bible teaches us about? Is that helpful? So last week, the Supreme Court nominee, Justice Jackson, was being questioned on abortion during her confirmation hearings. And a senator asked this professing Christian woman this question. When does life begin, in your opinion? I don't know if you heard her answer to this but she's gonna be ruling on cases that require her to put her belief of that crucial question into practice. But Justice Jackson's answer was, Senator, I don't know. She gave a forced chuckle, and then the senator prompted her, ma'am, like he wanted, he wanted her to say more, and then she repeated, I don't know. I have personal, religious, and otherwise beliefs that have nothing to do with the law in terms of when life begins. I have religious views that I set aside when I'm ruling on cases. Kennedy then asked, when does equal protection of the laws attach to a human being? Jackson again said, I don't know. This is the same woman that can't, or should we say refuse to define a woman, right? Now you could say, David, you're getting political. I am, but that would be missing the point completely. We're talking about politics right now, so let's move past that to what I'm saying about politics. Your faith should never be put aside, ever. Your view of life, when it begins, the difference between male and female, all of those things should be informed by your faith, which should come from the Bible. And that has everything to do with how you interpret the law because you can't interpretly act and accurately interpret the law that was written by people with religious beliefs if you set aside your faith and pretend that the law is this mechanical device that has no connection to morals and justice, which are in and of themselves faith-based beliefs. We could go on all day about how Fast, our Western culture is pivoting and running away from God. We just did a series through the book of Ruth, which took place in the days of the judges, when there was no king in Israel. God was not on the throne, and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. And that's the world we're living in right now. Things are drastically changing. The pressure is getting turned up. Human rights that you thought you had, the right to choose, what someone else would inject into your body, that has been challenged and taken a huge blow. People are living in fear about what they can and cannot say, where they can and cannot go. 
And this isn't just the online fact-checkers who are the enemy of free speech. We're talking about people who work at Disney World are afraid of these kind of things, feeling that kind of pressure. The land of the free and the home of the brave, that's what it's, it's happening right here. Most people don't even realize what a far cry our current situation is even from two and a half years ago. Now, rising inflation is definitely turning some heads, but the majority of people are still in denial. And Christians, even big leaders in the evangelical world, are going right along with the world's narrative. They repeat the same talking points. They support the same current thing that we're all supposed to get on board with. And they are oblivious to what people are saying out loud. The Great Reset. The New World Order that our president just mentioned this week that is happening right before our eyes. And if you think... And if you don't think the Great Reset has anything to do with the one world government that is going to be ushered in in the last days, I politely ask you to please just open your eyes and wake up. The men in my life group were talking about this very thing this week. We have a lot of conversations in our life group in the mealtime. Whether it's cryptocurrency or political events, we, we go there. Um, <laughs> and one of the guys mentioned to, the, to me this new Home Depot training material and he sent me a picture of it, of this paper, and it lists all these different privileges. And privilege is such a bad thing, right? It doesn't matter that 99.9% .9 of our country has a variety of privileges, and I don't have time to get into that right now, but if you've never thought about what's behind privilege in this, in this push that's getting crammed down our throats, I would just like to point out it's another political issue, just like critical race theory, that has everything to do with tearing down our moral structures that our country was founded on. So let's talk about it for a minute in church. Because if we keep silent about it and we let other people redefine all these terms for our young people, Forget what's going to happen to our country, what's going to happen to our actual lives when the masses are consumed with false flag problems that turn people into victims and feed disunity. Does that sound like an issue that the church should be aware of and the church should discuss? So let me just give you a list of these privileges that was on this Home Depot training material. If you were confident in the police that they exist to protect you, you have white privilege. If while growing up, college was an expectation for you, not a dream, you have class privilege. If you can use a public bathroom without stairs, fear, or anxiety, you have cisgender privilege. If you don't have to explain that your spouse is of the same gender, you have heterosexual privilege. If you can expect time off from work to celebrate your religious holidays, you have, catch this, not religious privilege, it says you have Christian privilege. And it goes on and on, and then it asks you literally to check all the boxes of all the privileges that you have, literally. And without saying it, the more boxes you check, the more guilty you should feel. And if you haven't figured this out yet, shame is not something that Christians should be feeling. We get victory over sin through Jesus Christ, and the shame that once owned us is, is, is under the blood. And it's a horribly bad motivator. And it does nothing but breed discontent, victimhood, and disunity in a culture. Now, again, why am I spending all of this time on this? Am I telling you to cling to your guns and get ready to defend America? No, that's not where I'm going with this at all. 
That's not the message of 1 Peter. Am I telling you that you should expect lost people to know truth and to treat you nice? No, that's definitely not what we're talking about here. I am not here to defend our supposedly Christian nation. The Church of Jesus Christ existed well before our country was ever founded, and it will thrive with or without the U.S. of A. But we're going to see in this letter that we're citizens of a greater kingdom. That, that we should still care about our communities, but our citizenship is in heaven and our king is Jesus. Amen. And my point here is that Christians are no longer seen, I'm saying all this to, to just wake you up to the point, that Christians are no longer seen as the good guy by the majority of the lost world. Now, are we partly to blame for that? I Sure, I mean, we, 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 we are sinners too. Um, but I'm not trying to get us to defend ourselves or to fight amongst ourselves so we can fit in with the world and so the world can accept us a little bit. Like, that's not going to work. The world has a spirit of antichrist, and it's more and more obvious every single day. If you're a Christian, you are a hindrance to progress. You are the outsider. You are the bigot. You are the scum of the earth. Why? Because you believe God created this world and that he is the source of all good things and that he created male and female to complement one another and that sex outside of marriage doesn't help you, it hurts you. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. But if you believe those things, you are holding back progress. The narrative is being rewritten. And it's a very big iceberg and it's very deep and there's a lot of dark things under the surface. So I'm not trying to scare you and make you get defensive with the loss, none of that. What I'm saying is we are starting to feel the hostility and barring revival in the very near future, it's only going to get worse. And Peter has some words to prepare you for that. I said all of that because that's what these Christians were facing as Peter wrote this letter to them. It's exactly what you are facing. There's a very real storm stirring at the gate, but this is not a letter of fear and defensiveness. This is a letter of hope and encouragement. It's a letter of resolve and confidence in the face of adversity because we know Christ. And if you are in Christ, you can't be driven by fear like the rest of the lost world. You are driven by love. And you don't live for this present life, two and a half kids, a home, and a dog. Like, we don't live for that. We don't live in the fantasy land of the glory days when gas was cheap and kids played in the dirt and men were men and women looked good. Like, we, we don't focus on that. <laughs> don't take that too far because you can still have all those things. You can still have all of that. You can still live that life. You very much can. We have a king. His name is Jesus and we are citizens of an eternal kingdom. Now, what do we do with our precious momentary time on this earth? It, it matters. What we do matters. We have a mission. He has a plan for us. And life is good, even when the quality of life isn't the same. What really matters in this life cannot be touched by our enemies, foreign, domestic, or spiritual. It can't. The world corrupts things. They defile things. Things will go down if it's not given over to God. And that's exactly what we're going to see in this passage. 
So in this, in this letter, Peter is giving the church that is feeling pressure, that's going to get 100 degrees worse, because 20 years from now, these, these same Christians are going to be slaughtered by gladiators. He's giving them the message that you also need to hear right now. We're all facing it, the pressure with the economy, the pressure in the classroom, the pressure with the family. Circumstances are always changing, but our God never changes, and his truth never changes. So we have nothing to fear. And in these first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter actually gives us the outline of his entire book. There's three themes in these first 12 verses that Peter is going to weave in and out through this entire letter. Hope, suffering, and glory. Hope, suffering, and glory. He goes on and on throughout the whole book and weaves those truths in. That's the entire book. So we have a lot of incredible truth to unpack, and I'm done with my uncomfortable opening series illustration. But let's start by reading the text together, 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, the first three verses here are rich enough to meditate on for the rest of the day. You can do that. I invite you to do that. But every one of these words are intentional. He's telling the church to those chosen, living as exiles, to those who God has saved, you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is the doctrine of election. God having elected those who would be the heirs of salvation. The election of God is based upon his foreknowledge. 
Now, if you believe that God knows all things, you should have no problem with election. If you have a limited view of God and you don't see that God sees all things from the beginning of creation to the end, even before creation and beyond, you might have a problem with election. But God knows who will accept him and who will reject him. Don't have a limited view of God. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1 that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And here again, election is according to the foreknowledge of God. So God knows everything. He's not bound by our linear timeline. He's transcendent above it all. And the work of the Trinity is, is clearly at work in your salvation. You're elect. You're set apart, sanctified by the Spirit of God, and then you're cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And to those elect exiles, those chosen sojourners, he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. So grace there, that's translated, you know, the word translated grace in the English, that's the Greek word charis. And that's, where, that's the way the Greeks would, in, would introduce themselves and, and, and greet themselves. Grace to you, charis to you. The Jews would, would greet each other with shalom, which means peace, shalom. So, so Peter is blending those two greetings together for the Greeks and for the Jews, and he's saying grace and peace be multiplied to you. He's got the chocolate and vanilla all blended together in a nice swirl. Grace and peace. The church is this new living organism. It's, it's a group of diverse people that have come together, but they're all elect by God. You're living as exiles. You are dispersed abroad. We've already talked about the pressure and the persecution that's building up. And here's the first theme. It's in verses three through five. Number one, you have a living hope. Rest in your imperishable election. This is the first great theme of this letter. Peace will never be found in blind optimism. Joy is never going to be found in sticking your head in the sand and pretending all the problems are just going to fade away and and country will get better one day and my kids are going to be fine, even if I don't say anything. Peter begins this entire letter of encouragement with our living hope, Jesus Christ. And he's coming out of the gate firing. How can you handle what you're facing How can you stare evil down, stare it in the face and smile and bless those who curse you and pray for those who despitefully use you? There's only one way. It's to rest in your imperishable election. He's gonna go on to talk about this. You are a sojourner. You're a stranger, an alien in this world. This world is not your home. You speak a different language. You have a different value system. Those people out there in the world that don't understand you, they are in the dark. They actually don't have yet what you have been given. It's not something to puff yourself up about. It's something to share with them in a loving way. And here's what you have to start with. It all begins with the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus Christ, our living hope. And he has an exclamation point in that first line of verse 4. Because of his great mercy, he has withheld the judgment that we deserve and he placed it on his son, Jesus, who bore the wrath for our sin and a just God punished Jesus at the cross and Jesus' righteousness is now imputed into us and he's given us a new birth. You have been adopted and you are redeemed. 
You are a people now marked by joy, radiant hope, love, and peace. The focus can't be on you and your problems. You have, you have to move on from your failures, and the only way you do that is by focusing on God's initiative. Being born is one of the most passive things you could ever do. Being born wasn't on you. It's not something you contributed to at all, actually, right? You didn't pick the doctor. You didn't pick the date. Julie's carrying a little boy right now, and, and, and she's doing a lot of work, and she will continue to do a lot of work for that baby, and there will be a lot more pain to come. When you're born, you did nothing to contribute to that. When you're born again by God, he chose you. You are elected by God's grace, and he gives you life. No one can brag about that. Just like you can't save yourself by being a good person or doing the right thing, you, you can't will yourself out of the womb, okay? And as long as you focus on yourself and your problems and your issues and their issues and what they did to me and what they said to my kid, as long as you're focusing on all of that and God's grace and mercy is off the table, you are going to feel shame, guilt, anxiety, and the fear that permeates our world. Your salvation is not dependent on you. It is of God. So as soon as you get your eyes off the darkness and onto your living hope, he is the catalyst that changes everything. Jesus. All of this is through, what does verse 3 say? It's all through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he has given us chosen sojourners an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. I love how the Holy Spirit has inspired scripture. It's so rhythmic. If you think you're the initiator, you're going to get stuck. You didn't initiate anything. He called you, he drew you to himself, and he is the one who gives you life. Your life is not dependent on your effort. It's alive because Jesus is alive right now. And everything this side of eternity can and will perish, be defiled, and fade away. This is why we don't cling to our guns and get ticked at the people who don't think like we think. We can't do that. Everything born of man will perish, be defiled, and fade. But our eternal gift of life, our inheritance in the kingdom of heaven, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Do you ever think about that? How everything else fades? Do we need to spend time on this? I mean, you get a new car, right? Don't you dare eat in this new car. It's got to keep this thing spotless. You wax that thing. I mean, it is. And then, and then like, don't, don't eat in this car. And, and then before you know it, you know, I don't know, six months later, you, like, slip out of your car because you're, like, the Chick-fil-A bags are on the floorboard. And, and that, that brand new phone that you had that you used to keep spotless, you dropped that because you slipped off the Chick-fil-A wrapper and, and then you just pick that phone up off the ground. Oh, well, just brush it off. We'll keep using this one. You used to care a lot about that phone. Now it's just like, whatever, let the kid slobber all over it. I mean, that's like everything fades. The best things we have fade. You know, I'm, I'm into sports cards right now. My dad, I was into it with my dad when I was a kid. I remember in the 90s, we would go to these sports card shows and you know, we look at all these cards like, oh, wow, that one looks awesome. And okay, now like 99.9% .9 of those cards are completely worthless. Nobody cares about them anymore. 
Of course, there's a few outliers, right? But, I mean, you still got those old guys. And I take my boys to card shows now, and you see these old guys. I love it. Like, they got their 1950s baseball cards. You know, there's, I mean, I'm not trying to get dark or negative here, but, like, there's less people every day that care about those 1950s baseball cards, right? Like, the, the, the realm of people who still love those and enjoy them, I'm, I'm glad they love it. But they all fade away. None of that stuff is imperishable. None of that, none of that stuff is going to last for eternity. Styles change. Clothes get defiled and stained. I was talking to Julie about this last night. Like, I need some new shirts. I, I, my shirts are kind of old right now. They're getting worn out. But I'm in this weird stage of life where I don't want to, I don't see anything I like at the store. It's like all these clothes, I saw that in the 90s, and I would look weird wearing that again. And I also don't want to wear that because like, my dad wore that shirt for 30 years. So I'm in, this, I'm in this really weird like middle ground. I don't even see any clothes that I like to buy. But, but that's my own problem. Let's get back to this. Only the glory of God and the power of Jesus is imperishable. And that's because our inheritance is in Christ. It's not in stuff. It's in a person. Our hope is alive. Our hope is not in this country. It's not in a job. It's not in a child. It's not in a dream. Any of those things. If it's on that, it's going to get rough for you. Our hope is Jesus. So that's the number one theme. Again, our living hope, Jesus Christ. It's going to be reoccurring throughout this letter. Here's theme number two. Sandwiched between the good news of the gospel, we have number two, present suffering. Rejoice in your undefiled sanctification, verses six through nine. I already told you the Roman emperor, who he was at this time. It's going to be very relevant as we get further into this book. But the original audience, just like you and me, no stranger to suffering. Now, we aren't all afflicted in the same way. Of course not. I think most of us in here, if we're honest, we've lived a good life. When I was in, when I was in the middle of seminary, 2008 is when the financial collapse of, you know, happened back then, 2008, which affected the millennial generation a lot in a different way than maybe the boomer generation has been and the generation before them. There's not as many economic opportunities. Nobody's on a level playing field. You know, the millennials have had some financial hardship. The next generation is also having a lot of problems of their own. We all face adversity in a fallen world. There's nothing new under the sun. So we all are tempted. We all struggle with people. I was thinking about this this week, and, and I, I don't, for some reason I remembered when I was in high school, I worked at a golf course, and... I was, a, I was a Christian. You know, I wasn't that vocal about it. I wasn't that strong in my faith. But I had my boss, the golf pro, was this nominal Catholic, and he just relentlessly joked me and pretty much harassed me about pornography. It was just, it was so, it was so awful. You know, that was a trial. But, I mean, that's child's play to what many people are facing now. There are Christians um, who believe that we can actually just turn the tide and make this present life down here, this side of eternity, we can make it so much better that we will usher in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. They're called dominion, that's called dominion theology. 
It's the world will get gradually better and better. You know, most of the people in America gave up on that idea back in like World War II, and then especially when Vietnam happened. It had a little slight uptick resurgence in the 80s, you know, with, with Ronald Reagan. But, but there's still people today that believe this, that we will bring revival, that we can make it happen, and then Jesus Christ will rule and reign because we fix the world. I'm sorry, that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus will rule and reign one day, and we do have a responsibility to impact this, this community in our world with the gospel, absolutely. But we're not going to solve the problems of the world and make it a utopia. Only Jesus can do that. And that's like probably a podcast for another day. But the promise of salvation is not to give you your life, you know, I'm going to give my life to Jesus, and now I'm going to get whatever I want. All my dreams are going to come true, and it's just going to be a happy time. It's not to give your life to Jesus and watch your country become prosperous and capitalistic again. No, that's way too small of a view. Your salvation is about being freed from the bondage of sin, being restored into a relationship with God to experience the goodness of life that God originally planned for you. Fellowship in a, in a relationship that will, that will go on for eternity. And you have this journey with Christ and he restores all things, and he makes all things new. The process of sanctification is being set apart to become like Jesus Christ. So the trials we all go through in this life, they refine you. They solidify your faith. And it forces you to get off yourself and to abide in Christ. Now, suffering can crush us. I've definitely seen that happen. It can make you bitter and resentful and harsh and just no fun to be around. Or it can sanctify us and draw us closer to God. Suffering can refine you by burning away all of your false hopes. This is one of life's greatest paradoxes. Life's hardships deepen our faith and make it more genuine. It's just the way it works. Many of us in this room are going through various trials. I've been counseling a young man just last week who used to go to our church. He, he, he lives out of state now. And he's going through an excruciating time. Like he failed, he messed up. He's coming to terms with his own dishonesty and selfishness. His heart has just been wrecked with shame. But he's turning that over to Christ. And he's not getting bitter and resentful and staying stuck in the past, the shame and guilt of that, but he's instead looking to Jesus Christ. And he's maturing. He's getting stronger. I'm, I've, I keep telling him, hey, what I'm hearing come out of your mouth is very encouraging because you are growing closer to God through that massive mistake. The same sun that melts the ice can harden the clay. You've probably heard that before. Trials can harden you or they can break you down to be molded by the potter's hands, our good God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So don't let the enemy get in your head and lie to you. Instead, read the truth. This is what God says about you. You are chosen. You are redeemed. He's sanctifying you. And through this present suffering, rejoice in your undefiled sanctification. That's theme number two. And here's the last one, number three. 
future glory. Revel in the unfading mystery of who you've become. Let's read verses 10 through 12 again. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's, that's a paradox. Again, that's confusing. The, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories? It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is incredible here. Do you realize what Peter is saying? He's saying that the prophets who wrote the Old Testament, there were times that they're writing this down as they were led by the Spirit. They didn't even understand what they were writing. There's a, there's a portion in Daniel where where the Lord just said, Daniel, seal it up. It's not for right now. It's for the future. In the last days, knowledge will be increased and they'll understand it then. So you just seal it up. It's not given to you to understand fully at this particular point in time. You have that in Daniel. In Psalm 22, David is writing this psalm. And it says, these things will come and be declared to a people yet to be born. That's the last verse in Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm that David wrote that describes Roman, Roman crucifixion, something that hadn't even been invented yet, okay? David is writing this psalm, and he has to be thinking, like, why is the Messiah going to suffer and die? How does that make any sense? It's for those who are yet to be born. Jesus quoted a line from that psalm on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? Those words were on the heart of Jesus Christ on the cross. No doubt it was the same for the prophet Isaiah, who in Isaiah 53, he talks about the Savior being numbered with the transgressors in his death. Isaiah wrote a lot of glorious things about the Messiah as well. Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, chastisement of our peace upon him, with his stripes we are healed. For all of us like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own ways, and God laid on him the iniquities of us all. He was stricken, smitten, and we esteemed him not. So Isaiah is writing these things that seem to be totally incongruent. The Messiah is going to be put to death, and yet he's going to reign on the throne of David forever? How does that work? Isaiah is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write that. And he can't, he can't make sense of it all. It's a mystery that the prophets wrote this down, and it's for you. They themselves did not understand their own prophecies concerning the suffering Messiah. That's what 1 Peter 1.12 is saying. So here's the message of 1 Peter. Worship team, you can come up right now. We have a living hope. We have present suffering, and we have future glory awaiting us. We have a living hope. His name is Jesus Christ. And in the midst of our suffering, please just open your eyes because we have a future of glory and peace and victory. Revel in the unfading mystery of who you have become. The Old Testament prophets, 
they were blessed by God. They were rejected by, by their peers, but they were vindicated in eternity. We can see that now. They, they, they were guided by things that they didn't even fully understand through the Holy Spirit that pointed to Jesus Christ. They waited in patience, they walked in perseverance, and they looked forward to the first coming of Jesus Christ. You and I, we look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But we have the same spirit that the prophets had. And we know more now than even the angels did back then. This is what I find fascinating. The angels look at us, those elected, those chosen sojourners who have been elected by God the Father, and their jaw drops. It's something they look at and they are shocked at how God is writing his story. It wasn't fully revealed to them and it's surprising. God is doing all of this with these people? With us? <laughs> the angels are not made in God's image. We are. The fallen angels who rebelled against God, the demons, they will never be redeemed. They will never receive salvation. It's over for them. They are destined to eternity in hell because of their rebellion against God. If you're a human being made in the image of God, you have an opportunity, unlike the angelic beings, to repent and be restored. Even though the angels are stronger than us and we're weaker than them physically and, and they have way more abilities than we have, there is this mystery that we are made in his image to reflect his glory and we will be saved. So my challenge to you here is to live bold, live free, have compassion, keep your dining room table open, invite others into your life to enjoy the good news and to hear the good news that you, ex you are experiencing. Invite them into your story and don't just stay focused on the negative aspects of your story. Put your story into God's story. Root yourself in resurrection hope. Shake off the temporal sufferings as you look forward to the future glory of Jesus Christ with God our Savior. And let's all say together our verse, Romans 12, 9 through 13. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. You are loved. Thank you.